Over the last 2,000 years, many heretical beliefs about the nature of God have popped up. Today, we're going to look at the five main ones and why they fail the test of Scripture. Welcome to the Dance of Life podcast. My name is Tudor Alexander, and I'm your host as always. Thanks so much for being with me today. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe on my website. That's danceoflife.com. It's free, it's easy, and it's super simple. And you can watch all of my content when it comes out ad-free. I know that YouTube has been doing some sneaky things. He's been doing some sneaky things to my content. Some people said that the likes are getting unliked, that the subscribes are getting unsubscribed. So just a quick little PSA, usually before some of these episodes, I like to remind people to please stay connected on my website, especially if you don't know what the future holds with account banning and all these types of things, especially when you're talking about some controversial. Now, the, the Trinity series that we're doing right now isn't very controversial, but there are other things that I've created and I plan on creating that will probably be controversial nonetheless. So ultimately, make sure you stay subscribed on the website, danceoflife.com. But today we are nearing the end of this series, very important Bible study series on the Trinity. I didn't realize it'd be this many episodes, but when you really dive into the nature of God, there are just so many things to talk about that are very important. Most of them dealing with Jesus and and the nature of Christ as both human and God. Looking at the Old Testament, New Testament, all these things that we looked at, they're so important. So if you're just joining, this is again towards the end of the series, if you're just joining, then go back and watch those previous episodes. Get the context, because today we're talking about heresies. We're really at the end of the series now. We have a couple more very in-depth, very important episodes to come, but we're we're looking at these beliefs that basically aren't correct. They're out of alignment. And so in order to do that, you really need the context of the previous episodes. Now, we've looked at a lot of different things up until this point, so I'm just going to review them very briefly, because I'm throughout this series, or throughout this episode, rather, I'm going to be touching on these ideas. So again, if this is new territory for you, if you're just joining, or if you're not too familiar, if you watch some of the episodes of the past, maybe skip some of them, then now is a good time to really bookmark and catch up, take notes, these types of things. But we talked about a lot of important things. I'm going to bring that context with me into today's episode. The first one being that Early on in the series, we talked about the Father and the Spirit both being persons. Obviously, the Father is, but a lot of people, and you'll see today, especially with these heresies, relegate the Spirit to some sort of force or some sort of metaphysical thing happening between the Father and the Son. It's some abstract philosophical conjecture rather than a person. There's a lot of people who kind of do these ideas, you know, binatarians, some people who believe in inseparable operations. There's a lot of things we'll talk about, but the point is this. We looked at how the spirit has to be a person. We'll talk more about this today because this is one of the main ones, is denying the person of the spirit. But we looked at that very early on in the series. We looked at Jesus as the eternal pre-existent God from the Old Testament made flesh. Very important. We looked at what the apostle said, what he said about himself. We looked at the Old Testament like things like typology, the angel of the Lord, the word of Yahweh, the spirit of Yahweh most recently. So we looked at a lot of very important contextual pieces to this puzzle, 
proving without a shadow of a doubt that the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, reveals that God is triune in nature. Now, of course, in the Old Testament, there's shadows of that. It's not a very clear picture, and that's the point. You have to use the New Testament to interpret the Old. Now, some people are still stuck in the Old Testament, or they use the Old Testament to interpret the New, which is something you want to avoid because there's a lot of mistakes and heresies that do that, not just relating to God's nature. Eschatology. I talk about end time stuff all the time on this channel, on my website. I have an end time series. One of the big mistakes is using the Old Testament like dispensationalists do to interpret the New Testament. And, And of course, that leads you to all kinds of errors. But today we're talking about heresies. And we're we're looking at these various errors, and there's really five of them. There's five major ones. I'm sure there are probably more. You know, there's as many opinions as there are people, but there are five main heresies. And my point is, once once you see these, you'll be able to really get a grasp on the pattern like, what, what does it mean to create a heresy? It's actually pretty easy to create a heresy. You just take the truth and you take it off balance in one direction or another. And we're also going to look at some more in-depth, theologically complicated topics following this episode. One thing is going to be called monarchical Trinitarianism. You probably have never heard that before, but believe it or not, a lot of people believe it. So it's something to address. It's a very predominant belief, especially in the Eastern Orthodox religion, which has almost a billion people. So it's a very, very significant belief system, but it's not correct. And I would say it's, it's almost a heresy. I don't know. It's, it's hard to pin, pin it down because you could argue both ways, but either way, it's not correct. And we're also going to look at Eastern Orthodoxy and their view of the Trinity. We'll see how that goes. There's a lot to talk about with Eastern Orthodoxy. I used to be Eastern Orthodox. There's just, Eastern Orthodoxy is really, if you've looked into it, it's it's a very, in some ways, very unique religion of denomination of Christianity. They have just their own things. It's a very different kind of religion. But nonetheless, we're going to look at that in the ensuing episode. So a lot of interesting things coming up that will hopefully arm you, arm you with knowledge and wisdom about the nature of God and be able to defend against various heresies and viewpoints. Now, the main question we want to go into today with is why is the Trinity important? Why is the Trinity important? Why is it so important that we get this right? It's one of the foundational teachings of Christianity on the nature of God. Why is it so important to get this so right? And there's three main reasons, at least that I can think of, that are biblically based and and very significant in terms of their impact. And those three reasons are God's glory... God's character, and the nature of salvation. So again, God's glory, God's character, all these things are at stake, and also the plan of salvation. Understanding the plan of salvation, making sure we have the gospel correct, because the gospel is Trinitarian. We looked at that very early on in in this series, why it has to be Trinitarian, and why that's just so important. It's an expression of the relationships within the Godhead which is so profound to understand if you really understand it from a Trinitarian perspective. But if we get, so here's now the, the, what's at stake. If we get this wrong, at the very least, at the very least, you're impacting your, your perception of God. You're, you're impacting and twisting God's character and glory, distorting it in some way. That's at the minimal impact. If you get this wrong, if you get understanding the Trinity wrong, 
at the maximum impact, you are basically a heretic. You're, you're drifting off into apostasy or you're full-blown apostate and you believe a false gospel. And we'll see many examples today of that. Now, we have to be very studious here because the, the Bible provides you with a mystery in the Trinity. The, mis the mystery of the Trinity. The Trinity is something that is not something you can understand and put God into a box and say, see, we've got it now. This is how God works. God has revealed certain things about himself that is unified. He's one being and he's revealed certain things that, that he's distinct, different persons. How, how does that work? How does it work to have the incarnation? That's another very important area of heresies. We'll look at some of that today as well, because that influenced people's belief of the Trinity and various heresies that rose up, like Unitarianism or subordinationism. But the, the incarnation is another perfect example. People could not wrap their mind around how God, how Jesus could be God, fully God and fully man. How does that work? Well, no, he must be, he must have two persons. He must, he must have like a split personality. No, he must be, you know, 50-50 or he must be, you know, just human. Maybe he got, you know, transformed into a God. Yeah, you know, there's so many versions because people could not handle the cognitive dissonance of a mystery. And so really that's what we want to take on with us as we go into these heresies. And remember that a heresy is actually pretty easy to create. Hopefully you'll learn that after today. You'll, you'll see that heresies are, are not difficult to create. In fact, they're very easy to create because the truth itself is very mysterious. And as soon as you lose mystery from that truth by trying to pin it down in one direction or another and push it off balance so it's a little more logical this way or that way, that's when you create a heresy. So that's my goal today is really less of commenting on all these heresies because there's people who've written books on all these things and more to give you discernment. To, to give you the ability to see patterns and see, oh, okay, this one just goes that way a little more or that way. So a couple of verses I want to ground us in before we get started are in John. And this is very important because it'll be a theme throughout today. This is in John 8. First one's in verse 13 through 17. He says, so the Pharisee said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. Meaning they don't recognize that he's from God and that he is God. But verse eight, verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. You have any, even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. And your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. So right off the bat... Jesus tells you that there are two persons. So keep this in mind. There's distinction within God. And of course, there's a lot of context I'm bringing into this. So remember, if you're first coming into this and you don't believe that Jesus is God, we have several episodes on that. So you have to bring that context with you because Jesus is God. So when he's distinguishing himself from the Father, there's two people, then this is a very important point because testimony is always relational between God. Glory is always relational between God, which is what we're going to read next. This is later in John 8, verse 54. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. So the Father glorifies Jesus. 
And of course, we know also that Jesus glorified the Father through the works that he did and, and showing the Father to humanity. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So there's this interrelational glory that is given between the persons. It's very important to understand that. The Father is not glorifying himself by himself. The Father is glorifying himself through the Son. And the Son glorifies the Father, the Spirit glorifies the Father as well through the Son. There's all these inter-Trinitarian relationships. Now there's a study guide associated, or I guess like a visual guide, associated to this series on the actual series page on my website in the Bible studies section. So check that out and you can download and you can see all these different relationships biblically based with verses there to show you the inter-Trinitarian relationships that happen. Now, of course, again, these are just, these are things that we see from scripture. It's not, you're not supposed to be dogmatic about these things. These are just things that we see from scripture's angles. It doesn't mean we put God into a, you know, a model or a box, but this is the best working model that we have to, to try to grasp at his nature, which is triune. But the very important point that things are relational within God. This is what I wanted to show with these couple of verses, is that, that testimony and glory, witnessing is always relational within God. This is a very important point for today, because it's going to address some of the heresies that we're going to look at, like modalism. But again, today's goal is to get you familiar with these things so that you understand the narrow road. The narrow road is, is always not to the left, not to the right. I've talked about this so many times. It's really, truly profound because the Bible tells you to avoid dialectics. And dialectics mean go too much to the left or too much to the right. Too much this way or too much that way. Too much focus on separation or too much focus on unity. It's always something that's too much. And to me, again, this is the dance of life. This is why I call the podcast The Dance of Life, because it's the dance between these two opposites that really is life. Life is not about going over here to the left or over here to the right. Today, people are very polarized. They're so caught up in the dialectics. It, life is about understanding, okay, there is a left and there's a right, and I have to walk down the middle. I have to walk that narrow road. And most of the things you'll see, like in scripture with mysteries, this is how they operate. God has given you on one side unity of himself. Our God is one. Echad, of one mind, not one like person. And then you have distinction. You have Old Testament distinctions. You have like the angel of Yahweh and Yahweh. And you have New Testament distinctions like Father, Son, Holy Spirit. What do you make with that? Well, you make it that God is one being existing in three persons, multipersonal. How does that work for us? We don't know because we don't exist that way. Do you expect God to exist in the same way that you do, but just with like superpowers? His, his very nature has to be completely beyond anything you could ever imagine. That's how you know you're dealing with God. But I, I digress, I continue. Let's, let's get into this because there's five major heresies that really we want to address. And again, you'll see the patterns here. Ultimately, People just have not been able to really keep a mystery in their mind and they don't want to deal with the cognitive dissonance. So they have to, they have to define it somehow to make it seem less mysterious. This is the one pattern that they all have in common. There are things that some of them have in common with each other. You know, there's different patterns, but the one pattern 
that all of them have in common is that they reduce the mystery of the nature of God. You'll notice this by making it understandable within our own physical limitations. It's really quite obvious once you see it, and you know it's not the truth. That's how you know the Trinity is the truth, one of the reasons. But nonetheless, the first one is modalism. So again, the, the answer really, before I even get started with this, the answer, or I should say the question that, that all of these things really come from is, if the Trinity isn't true, of course it is, but if it's not true, what are the options? What options do you have given the revelation of Scripture? How do you explain what we see of unity and distinction, which is undeniable that there's distinction and unity? The question is, how do you explain it? The Trinity explains it as one being existing in plurality. But if you reject that, then what are your options? Well, the first option is modalism. Modalism is a belief that God is basically one person, one being, one person, but he's phasing in and out of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So it's always the same person. But, you know, now he's the Son, now he's the Father, now he's the Spirit, and he just has these different manifestations. But he's one person. Our God is one, right? So modalism shifts everything to, to the side of unity. A modern example would be oneness Pentecostals, like T.D. Jakes, who's got other heretical beliefs. He believes in modalism. He's a modalist. And there's other people around him that are also modalists. But there's a major problem with modalism. And there's actually several major problems. But one of them is just when you reject God's character and, and nature as multipersonal, you run into situations in Scripture that are impossible to explain, that don't make any sense given the character of God that we just covered with John 8, where, where Jesus is saying, I don't witness him of myself. I testify of the Father. The Father testifies of me. I don't glorify myself. The Father glorifies me, and I glorify the Father. And other places, obviously. So with that in mind now, this is what we were talking about earlier, where, where it's going to come into play. What are? How do you explain, for example, Jesus in the garden? Is he praying to himself? He's praying to the Father, but he's, according to the modalist, he's basically praying to himself. Who did God love before time? Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, and, and the Father gave him an elect people to save. So the Father gave himself an elect people and determined that he would crucify himself? It doesn't make any sense. The, the inter-Trinitarian relationships of love become very nonsensical when you when you just have one person. God is totally 100% for God. But God is triune. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, the Spirit loves the Father and the Son. Love is communicated between the three persons. And so that's how it makes sense. But if you have just one person, it doesn't make sense with the character of God. God glorifying himself, again, versus relationally speaking. The Father glorifies the Son and vice versa, but if it's just one person, he's glorifying himself. That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense, given God's character. It seems very self-centered. Do you see the point? Now, God is focused on God, and he should be, and he is, because God is the most valuable, precious, infinitely worthwhile I don't want to say thing, but he's the most infinitely worthwhile in the universe. God has to be God-focused. 
God has to be about his glory. God has to pursue his righteousness and his glory and glorify himself. But God is triune. This is the way it works. The Father glorifies the Son, the Son glorifies the Father, vice versa. And of course, the Spirit's in there as well. It's it's relational, and so that makes complete sense. But if you don't have those relationships, then you have things like God glorifying himself, like one person. There's no communication of glory. There's no bearing witness. He's bearing witness to himself, even though he, God, said that the testimony of two witnesses, or more, is true. So if that's the case, then how can God witness of himself? You ever ask yourself that if you're a modalist? How can God witness of himself if he said that the testimony minimum you need is two people for something to be true? Well, if he's just one person, then everything that Jesus said is not true according to God because there's only one witness. See how that works? You can't phase in and out of two people and say, oh, those are two different people. No, it's one person in modalism. So that doesn't make sense. Making himself king. It's the father who made the son king. All these things are relational, very important. Even with the desert too, like leading himself to be tempted by the devil. The spirit led the son according to the will of the Father. All these things are inter-Trinitarian relationships. But if you have one person, the one person acting as the Father said, okay, I'm going to phase into the Spirit so I can lead myself into the desert. That doesn't make any sense. It really just doesn't. The modalist understanding is just probably the easiest to refute. But there's just other contradictions too, like the baptism, the voice from heaven in John 12, the transfiguration, there's at least three situations in the gospel, gospels, where you see distinctions between two persons, the Father and the Son, and in the baptism you have the Holy Spirit. You also see, like for example, Stephen being stoned and seeing Jesus sitting at the right hand of God multiple times. So obviously there's a distinction there where one more than one person is present that you don't see a modalist being able to explain. Because again, you're seeing two distinct persons. You see God, i.e. the Father, and Jesus sitting at his right hand. Separate persons. You also see in the Old Testament, we looked at the angel of Yahweh, how there's a switching between first person and third person narrative. The angel of Yahweh obviously claims to be God, but then he speaks of God in the third person. And that that goes, you know, it phases in and out of that during a conversation. So how do you explain that? Is he speaking about himself? Well, why is he used third person if he's not speaking of someone separate? So very interesting. Gospel also, again, it's, you have to remember the gospel is Trinitarian. We looked at things like the father drawing, the son interceding, uh, the, the Spirit conforming you to the nature of Christ. Of course, there's other roles that each person has, but those are some basic ones. But if it's just one person, then that doesn't make any sense either. It, again, in John 8, we look at God does not seek his own glory. This is actually in John 8, verse 50, I believe. Yet, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. So Jesus is not seeking his own glory. He's distinguishing here that there's someone, i.e. the Father, who seeks it, 
And he's the judge, meaning he's the judge of the earth. He, they knew who he's talking about. He's referring to God. God is seeking his glory. Well, wait a minute. How does that, first off, if you deny the divinity of Christ, why would God seek the glory of a created being? That doesn't make any sense. God seeks his own glory, God. Well, that means Jesus must be God, just like the Bible tells you. But the point here is that there's separation. There's distinction really is a better word. There's distinction between I being Jesus and the one being the father. There are two people being discussed here. It doesn't make sense if it's one person and he's talking about himself and then his other manifestation. That doesn't, that doesn't at all go with what the text is telling you. So modalism is something to be careful with. God is self-glorifying relationally, not individualistically. Very, very important. Again, that affects the nature and, and character of God. And modalism really is no different than other oneness type of religions like Judaism, Islam. You know, those people who reject Christ, ultimately they have, they, they think they're monotheistic, but monotheism is the revelation that God is one being existing in plurality. That is unique to Yahweh. And that is unique to monotheism. Allah is a false God. I have a whole episode on that in the, in the history of the belief in Allah. It's in my end time series, actually. It's in the episode, I forget which one, 21 or something. But it's talking about the role of Islam in the end times. You'll learn all about Allah there and, and how that became a belief system and how actually the Catholic Church started Islam, but that's another can of worms. But Allah is a false God. The Jews of today do not believe in the God that the Hebrews and Israelites and the Jews of Jesus' time believed in. And that's patently true because there's documented proof that people believed in two powers in heaven for hundreds of years, meaning they believed in the plurality of God. They weren't considered, they weren't considering themselves polytheists. They didn't believe in two gods. They believed in one God, but they believed that there was two powers somehow. So this is a Jewish-Israelite belief. It's not made up by, you know, the Trinity is not a, a Catholic invention. So the Jews of today don't believe in the same God of the Bible. They, they don't. It's a different God that they have. So when you are a oneness Pentecostal or a modalist, you're going, you're drifting into apostasy because you are denying the nature of God according to the revelation of Scripture. So we have to be very careful. Now, a lesser heresy that we talked about in the first episode on just basics. This is, I mean, I, I hesitate to call it a heresy, but really it's straddling the line. It really is almost a heresy. And this is inseparable operations. Now we talked about this in the first episode a little bit. I'm not going to even break it down here at all. And it's really not worth breaking down because it's just such a confusing philosophical metaphysical position on trying to explain the nature of God. Again, it's trying to put God into a box that you can understand because people cannot handle cognitive dissonance. I mean, that's normal. We, we don't like cognitive dissonance. We don't like things that we can't understand. So we have to find some sort of certainty. But that's the whole point with God. In this case, with God, you can't understand God. You have to marvel at God. The very fact that you can't understand God is why you can marvel at him. But inseparable operations, 
draws on the doctrine of simplicity, which is you cannot separate God into separate parts. He's not made of cells like we are, you know, we have cells. He's not made of bones or organs. He, he He's not split into any parts. There's nothing that creates God, right? Because if he was, if we were made, if he was made like us, like he had separate parts, then God would be created by something. Does that make sense? That's why this is a foundational idea. Like if there's inseparability of God, that's true. That is a foundational doctrine on the nature of God. However, again, everything is left or right. You have to understand, okay, how am I walking the narrow road here? Because if you go too much on the on the doctrine of inseparability and you say, well, God is just not separate at all. He has no distinction whatsoever. Then you run into heresy, like modalism. Modalism says there's no distinction. It's just one person phasing in and out of existence, or I should say out of, you know, um, different persons, like the Father, then the Son, then now he's the, you know, the Spirit, and so on, which doesn't make sense at all. So you see, it's too much this way. It's too imbalanced towards unity. But inseparable operations is like a step away from modalism, in the sense that they still acknowledge distinction within God, that there are three persons. But again, this is, this is why I don't focus on it in the first episode so much. I do go over it a little bit, and I'm not going to focus on it here either, because it's really confusing. I'll be honest with you. Like, I'm not very stupid when it comes to reading academic stuff. I've read a lot of things in my life. But reading stuff on inseparable operations is one of the most confusing, philosophically just waste of time kind of stuff. I mean, it's just because, here's the thing, because it is philosophy. People who believe this do not base it on Scripture. Sure, they'll find verses to support it, but they, they do not base this belief on scripture. It's a philosophical position, metaphysical position. So it's all these metaphors and philosophies and, and, and thought experiments rather than the nature of God revealed through, through the Bible. And we just marvel at that mystery. But inseparable operations basically is hypersimplicity. It's saying that all of the actions of the Trinity, every time... Jesus is acting every time the Spirit is acting, every time the Father is acting, are not separable from each other. Meaning the entire Godhead is acting all the time. When Whenever there's action, the entire Godhead is acting all the time. Now you may say, wait a minute, isn't that just modalism? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is practically modalism. And of course, they're going to distinguish it like, again, they have, there's a metaphor that's used very commonly, which is the idea of a sphere passing through a two-dimensional plane. Now, the sphere has an extra dimension, and so the people in Flatland would look at the sphere and say, oh, look, it's a circle, and it's getting bigger, and then it's getting smaller because the sphere is passing through the two-dimensional plane. And so for them, they're experiencing different size circles. Let's put it that way. But really what's happening is one sphere is moving. So it's, you know, it's again, it's an interesting thought experiment, but... You're trying to put God into a box, and it doesn't it doesn't come from Scripture. There's no such metaphor in the in the Word of God. So there's a lot of problems with it because it's again you're saying that all the time that actions are happening in reality, that God as a triune being is acting as one all the time. How do you explain all those previous situations we just talked about with modalism? Another problem with inseparable operations is that most people who believe this also tend to 
over metaphysicize, if that's a word, philosophize, philosophize the nature of the Holy Spirit. They relegate the Holy Spirit from being a person, like a person, just like Jesus is a person, just like the Father is a person, to this metaphysical energy and love that's expressed between the Father and the Son. So again, it's it's almost it's it's inseparable operations is like taking binitarianism, which we'll talk about in a second, and modalism and trying to make them into one thing. It's it's a really strange belief system. I don't recommend researching it unless you really want to twist your brain up a little bit. But it's again, it's it relies on philosophy, on metaphors, on metaphysics rather than scripture. And it it teaches separation of the agents of course there's separate agents but it's it, the agents are unified in action do you see the problem because the bible teaches you that there's separation of agents but they're unified in purpose jesus's will is the father's will is the holy spirit's will they're unified in one mind our god is one if you remember the other, I forget the name of the Bible right now, but one Bible translated it using more contextual, colloquial translation from the Hebrew as, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh alone is our God. That's a whole different meaning. Very interesting. But nonetheless, our God is one of one mind. He's not of one person or one you know, action all the time because you have the Father doing things, the Son doing things, the Spirit's doing things in the New Testament. The Old Testament, you have the angel of Yahweh doing certain things that the impersonal, not the impersonal, but the incorporeal, invisible Yahweh is not doing. Even the Jews, again, recognize that there's two powers in heaven. So you have very obvious things in Scripture that show that there's union of purpose, but not union of action. This is very important. So again, this is hypersimplicity with inseparable operations. I don't recommend reading about it. It is exceedingly confusing because people get lost in the weeds of philosophy rather than trying to use clear scriptural basis to justify it. It's conjecture. And again, it's conjecture trying to move God into something you can understand. Well, look, how can it be that God is one being acting through three different persons? You know, another one that they use, I forgot about this, but it's like if you took your hand, again, these are poor metaphors. It's like when you rely on metaphors to try to explain things instead of scripture, metaphors are okay. I use metaphors too, but most of the time they're not the best metaphors. But when you rely just on metaphors, this is the problem. Because it's it's almost goes into mysticism. Like if you're familiar with, for example, the the Brahmin of the Hindu, I believe it's Hindu or Buddhism, I forget which one it is, but the the teaching of the Brahmin, which is the God that is basically in everything. And so he, he killed himself because he wanted to experience separation. And so there we go. We're all part of that God now. And we're just kind of reflecting on each other and we're all divine. So this is the Brahmin teaching. And this is kind of the idea where you have in inseparable op operations again, Imagine you have your hand, it's one hand, but then the fingers are all acting, doing different things, but really it's your hand acting all at once. So it's it's trying to, to nail God's actions in person or nature to a unified way of acting 
rather than seeing that God as a triune being is unified in mind, in purpose, and separate in actions. There are things that the Father does that the Son doesn't do. While he was on earth, Jesus was doing things that the Father wasn't doing. There's separation of actions. There's economy. Inseparable operations doesn't really respect, again, one of those basic principles of economy. Remember how there's different economies within the Trinity? Meaning everybody's doing different things. They have different roles and purposes. We looked at that in the episode on salvation. And even that stuff, you don't take it too dogmatically. Because again, if you do, then you run into other problems, which we'll get into in just a second. So be careful with inseparable operations. Now, the next one is Unitarianism. And Unitarianism comes from, oh, by the way, I forgot to mention modalism. All of these are so old. They're just old heresies. You have to understand nothing new under the sun, just like Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9 says. There's nothing new under the sun. Modalism came from a guy named Sibelius in the 3rd century. A lot of heresies were happening in the 3rd century, by the way, 3rd and 4th. Nothing new under the sun. But Sibelius basically created Sibelianism in the 3rd century. He was one of the Roman teachers and scholars, and, and, and that led to the idea of modalism, which is still practiced today, 2000, almost 2,000 years later. Now, Unitarianism comes from Arianism, who was started by Arius, also around the 3rd century. Now, this is not to be confused with Arminianism. Arianism and Arminianism, two vastly different things. Arminianism has to do with salvation. It's belief of that free will is the factor. Arianism was a heresy in the 3rd century, which led to other things too, as you'll see. But the 3rd century had a lot of different heresies, and this led to the Council of Nicaea, Council of Constantinople, the, the creeds, all these church reforms designed to, a lot of people say, oh, see, the Council of Nicaea was the one that, you know, created all these false teachings like the Trinity. No, the Council of Nicaea was in response to a vast plethora of heresies that were coming up in the church. Some of them having to do with the incarnation, some of them have to do with the Trinity, the nature of God, all these things. So it's like, okay, we need to define what we believe. That was the push behind the Council, the Council of Nicaea. And as you'll see in the next episode with the monarchical trinity, there are still some errors that came out of it. In an effort to try to reform, they still compromised, and we'll get to that. But that doesn't mean the Council of Nicaea was some Trinitarian conspiracy either. There's a lot of historical precedence with Unitarianism because it, it's been influenced by a lot of different things, and it's very alive and well today. And we'll talk about that with the next episode on the monarchical trinity, because the monarchical trinity view comes out of this heresy, which is Unitarianism, but it's it's a subordinationist type of view. And they won't say they're subordinationist because there's layers to these things. Again, you have to distinguish layers. They're so important. And when you see the pattern, they're easy to distinguish, which is, again, you take something, and you just move it off balance. Is it too much to this way or too much that way? Modalism and inseparable operations, what's the imbalance? The imbalance is they take it towards the side of unity. And Unitarianism, I guess you could say that as well. There's like one God. <clears throat> Although they do acknowledge Jesus was a person separate from God. They just reject the divinity of Jesus. But it's still taking things in the direction of unity. Unitarianism, one. Whereas other ones will take it towards separation as you'll soon see. 
But there's a lot of things that emerged around the third century, subordinationism, which we'll talk about, Unitarianism. The basic premise is this, is that basically Jesus wasn't divine. He was created in some way. It de denies the divinity of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is an impersonal force that's basically just used by God. And some people argue that Jesus was divine. And you'll see this with binitarianism. Again, all these things have just... If you don't understand your history, we, we've lived a long time since Christ. A lot of things have happened. So you have to understand where your beliefs come from. But binitarianism is influenced, in a sense, by Unitarianism, because some people in Unitarian, in this procession of beliefs, believe that, well, okay, well, maybe Jesus is divine, but he's just not the kind of divine like the Father. Very important to put a little stamp in, because there's other things that will come into play with that. But some modern examples are Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, obviously Unitarians, Islam and Judaism. They believe in one God. That's it. One person, one God. We also talked about eternal subordination and the subordinationists, which is, again, it's like Unitarianism, but some of them, they believe, okay, well, Jesus is divine, but he's still eternally subordinate to the Father. Which, again, if you say that, if he's eternally subordinate, we have a whole episode on this, then he's, his nature is different. You cannot be eternally subordinate and also equal with the Father. And so this is the point, why subordinationism has many flavors. We looked at, for example, Seventh-day Adventism. I have nothing against Seventh-day Adventists, but the, or, the originators of Seventh-day Adventists were subordinationists. They... they they believe Jesus was subordinate to the Father. They believe Jesus was a lesser being than the Father. Some of them believe that he was created. I think Uriah believed that. I could be mistaken, but reference that episode. That's very much documented in history. Now, there are some major problems with Unitarianism. There are some major, major problems with Unitarianism. I Somebody once told me they were a biblical Unitarian. I don't know what that means. But certainly the Bible does not teach a Unitarian perspective. So I don't know how you can be a biblical Unitarian. That's like saying I'm a biblical atheist. Okay, well, how does that work? The Bible begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So it's impossible to say that. It's an oxymoron. Of course, nobody ever says that. But the point is that it's pretty much the same level of oxymoron, whatever the adjective of that is, oxymorony, oxymoronic, of saying, yeah, I'm a biblical Unitarian. Well, how does that work exactly? How can you possibly say you're a biblical Unitarian when literally history and context both argue against that perspective? And if you've been with me through this series, you know that already. You should know that. I've done, I've belabored to show you that the Bible teaches a multi-personal God. And the Jews believed that again for several centuries. It's not a Trinitarian conspiracy that God is multipersonal. They believed in two powers in heaven. They were binitarians. Of course, with Jesus, you realize, okay, there's not two, but three. There's three powers total in heaven. Doesn't mean there's three gods. It just means there's three persons. There's the Holy Spirit, there's the Father, and then there's the Son. But Unitarians have a real problem. And one of the biggest problems is the salvation and atonement. How does salvation work? If Christ is not God and you deny the divinity of Christ, you do not have an atonement. A created being cannot atone for all the people God has chosen to save 
for eternity. There, if we go by the sacrificial system, there is a value to every life. A bull is worth much more than a pigeon. Pigeons were never used to atone for groups of people. Bulls were used because they're more valuable. Well, now you can't sacrifice babies. God's against that. Why is that? Well, because babies are even more valuable. They're made in the image of God. So there's a tier of value. But now wait a minute. If Jesus is supposed to atone for everybody so that we have eternal life and we can live forever, God is granting you infinite life. That means in order to have infinite life, you need to have infinitely valuable sacrifice. Do you see the point? Why this is just, this is the crux of the argument against Unitarianism. There's many others, but this right here is the, the main point against Unitarianism. In order to have infinite life and be forgiven of your sins, which are many, and how many other sins of everybody, you know, thousands and tens of hundreds of thousands of people, millions that are going to be saved throughout the last however many thousands of years, countless people. Imagine the sin debt just for that. Not, not even talking about eternity. Imagine the value of the life that you need to pay the sin debt for all of humanity and all of history. There's no created being that could be valuable enough to pay for all that sin. There's no created being that could be valuable enough to atone and give people infinite life, eternal life. We talked about God's glory as well. That's another issue. The Bible says that God vindicated his righteousness through Christ because he had passed over former sins. Now, what does that mean? Well, God forgave people like David who deserved to die. He forgave you and me. He forgave countless people. And it looks, it looked like before the cross, it looked like God's forgiveness was cheap. That God wasn't serious about being the judge of the earth because a judge doesn't forgive sins and remain just. You can't do that. He has to punish the wicked. David killed Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, by sending him to the front lines of battle. And then he basically raped her. He forced her, you know, to come to him. And, you know, it's like exercise his power as king. That's rape. Now, imagine if you were Uriah's family and you knew that. And God and the prophet, basically, Nathaniel, came to David and said, your sins are forgiven. And you're Uriah's father? What are you going to think about God? You're going to think that God's unfair, that he plays favorites, that he doesn't uphold his own words on justice. Do you see the great cost that God incurred by being merciful to mankind? Incredibly great cost to his own name and glory. Now, the Bible tells you that Jesus redeemed that name, vindicated that name through his sacrifice. Through his sacrifice, Jesus proved, God proved, that he's just, that he very much is concerned about justice. So much so that he sent his only son, who has infinite value, to die on the cross. That's how much God cares about justice. He cares about justice so much that he sent his only son who has infinite value to be humiliated and to take the death that you and I deserve on the cross. 
God is very much serious about his name and his glory and justice. But now that only works if you believe that Jesus has infinite value and he's the God incarnate in human form. If you believe that Jesus is not God, you deny the divinity of Christ, you cannot have an atonement. God cannot vindicate his name through a created being or through a human being. Are you kidding me? It doesn't matter that that human being, let's say, was sinless and didn't sin. That's not the point. That's part of the picture that Jesus was sinless, of course. But the other major part is that he had to be divine. He has to be God in order for the atonement to work and for God's glory to be vindicated. But Unitarians don't understand that for some reason, one reason or another, which is very clear from if you read the New Testament, even the Old Testament too, it's very consistent. But the New Testament reveals these things. Atonement just can't happen. And we'll talk more a little about this as we go on, but Unitarians believe that Christ is created and yet the Father gives Christ all authority in heaven and on earth. And gives him all the favor and he inherits the earth. I mean, there's no created being that would ever do that. And again, this is all elaborated in very deep context in previous episodes. The nature of Jesus as God, the nature of what the apostle said about Jesus as God. Unitarians, you need to abandon your false teachings, your false gospel. You, you know, it's just, it's a shame because a lot of Unitarians are very biblically based in some sense. I mean, they know their Bible, but yet it's like you have this giant blind spot and the thing that matters the most. It's really sad. It's really sad. So you need to evaluate the impact of your beliefs. Jesus said that he is God in Revelation 1 verse 17 through 18. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Who says that in the Old Testament? Yahweh says that. We looked at what Jesus said. Go watch that episode if you're a Unitarian. Please. Get right with God because your beliefs are not going to save you. It's a false gospel. Now, other related heresies to this, again, I just want you to paint the pictures and see all these different things that relate because it's a lot of stuff to understand how these things came forward. And all of this will be context for next time as well when we look at monarchical Trinitarianism. But there's other related heresies like, for example, the Theodosians in the third century, again, a lot of stuff in the third century from Theodotus or Theodotus. They basically taught that Jesus was just human. So again, it was a, it was a Christological issue. It was an incarnational issue. They, they taught that he was human, that Jesus of Nazareth was a person, but Christ, as in the anointed one, was in the dove. And the dove, when it came down at the baptism, basically, however, just transferred that Christness to Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus like became anointed or, you know, transformed into the Christ. But they didn't say that Jesus was God and they didn't say that this situation transformed him to God. But some believe that he was God after the resurrection. So it's it really, it's all over the place. But basically the person of Jesus was transformed in some way or another, at the baptism. The Holy Spirit, again, wasn't a force. It was, it was Christ that came down in the dove and imputed that Christness to Jesus of Nazareth and so on. So Jesus was never preexistent. 
Of course, Jesus, the physical body, Jesus of Nazareth, was born physically. But God, the person, the Son in Jesus, was always preexistent. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, which is what John tells you. So that was Theodosians. And again, these things are, you could see how just all over the place there are people who are just scrambling, trying to make sense of something that is a mystery. That's really what it comes down to, is reducing the mystery of it. But in the fourth century, you also had monophysites. Mono being one, physite meaning physical. So they said that Jesus had one nature and he was just human. So they denied his divinity. And you also had the opposite camp, which is the Nestorians, where they were teaching that basically Jesus had two persons. You had the Logos or the Logos, however you want to pronounce it, and the person of Jesus. So he almost had kind of like multiple personalities within himself. So all these heresies led to the Council of Chalcedon in 451, where the standard for the incarnation was established, meaning Jesus has two natures, one person. If you blur or confuse the natures or you divide the person, you run into heresy. Do you see how, again, it's all about the narrow road? The narrow road is a mystery. Two, per, two natures, one person. How does that work? Well, it's a mystery. He's fully God and fully man. Well, we can't handle that. So we have to say, well, he must have two persons. And you're splitting the person. You're separating. You're moving towards the direction of separation. Don't swerve to the left or to the right. Oh, actually, he has one nature. He just must be human. There you go. Now you're moving towards the direction of unity. Too much unity, too much separation. God has revealed to you that he has both unity and separation within himself. How does that work? Well, he's God. I don't know. Deal with it. <laughs> Marvel at it. But if you can't deal with it, you're always going to try to drift off the narrow road to the right or to the left either too much to the separating side and splitting the person or too much to the unifying side and confusing the natures. There's a lot of historical heresies that have been just around the incarnation with just these two ways of making errors, if that makes sense. Then you have another one is Socianism. And this is pretty much the last one part of Unitarianism, which again, all these things are related because a lot of the Christological issues where people were confusing the nature of Christ, led them to believe things like Unitarianism. Can you see how if you deny that, that Christ was God, that automatically puts you as a Unitarian? That, that's the, makes thing, things that might, the thing that makes the most sense for you, is that God is just one person. Christ is just some sort of special messenger. Which again, doesn't make you any different from Islam, or, well, Judaism doesn't acknowledge Christ, but... A prophet, basically. Now, Socianism was created by Lelio and Fausto Suzini, their uncle and nephew pair. This was around the Reformation, 16th, 17th century. They denied, there we go, yet again, the pre-existence of Christ. They were accepted by the Unitarian Church of Transylvania, to my chagrin, because I'm Romanian. I'm not from Transylvania, I'm from the south of Romania, Bucharest, but... Either way, United Unitarian Church of Transylvania accepted them, and they also denied divine foreknowledge, which basically means that they were open theists, if you know what that is. Open theism is the idea that God doesn't know the future. And so he's just kind of, you know, 
working things as they go, but he doesn't know the future, which of course is completely false because God has given us over 1,800 prophecies in the Bible. If God didn't know the future, then that just doesn't make any sense. But nonetheless, again, these people don't read their Bible or they ignore the things that are contradictory to their beliefs. Open theism is a heresy because it denies the sovereignty of God. And anyway, but you can see how all these things are tying together. If you deny the divinity of Christ, okay, well, what's next? Well, God's probably not sovereign. You know, let's let's take a stab at that. All these things are interrelated. But the point is this. Over the last 2,000 years, there's been a lot of Unitarian-type heresies. And all of them come down to the same idea, which is that they deny the divinity of Jesus. We're going to see also subordinationism a little bit later and how that was a way to kind of accept Jesus' divinity and make a compromise on that, but also continue to make him less than the Father, which is expressed in monarchical Trinitarianism, even though, again, they're going to say they're not subordinationists. But you'll soon see very clearly next week, hopefully, that you'll be able to see, because theologically, it's a more in-depth topic. But it's very interesting. But it it builds off of these things. So again, all this stuff is context. You have to understand there's nothing new under the sun. It's always, how can we change the nature of Christ or move him here or move him there? Or, you know, try to make this make more sense in my mind rather than just accepting the mystery and revelation by God in the scriptures. But subordinationism is also part of Unitarianism. Although it's a step towards the truth, it's still error, but it's a step towards the truth. It acknowledges divinity of Jesus, but it's like, well, Jesus is divine, but he's not, you know, he's not like the Father is divine. Jesus is kind of a lesser created or divine being in some way. And there's people who say, who are subordinationists, who say Jesus was a created being. So it, it really, it, it, there's a lot of variation within this belief system. Now, the next one is partialism, and this one's pretty easy. It's basically the idea that and now this one, this is not, there's two in this list that I will preface and say this. They're not necessarily heresies that people believe. I haven't really met a partialist. I really haven't. Maybe they're out there. I don't know. But partialism and tritheism, three gods, what they are and why I'm listing them is that they are used as straw man arguments against people who believe the Trinity. So if you are a Trinitarian, realize that people will often use these arguments, partialism and tritheism, which we'll get to in a little bit, to try to misrepresent your beliefs. Partialism in this case is the idea that, well, there's each person of the Trinity is one third, like one third plus one third plus one third equals one God. So you have to be careful because some people who are well-meaning and they're giving metaphors like, for example, I saw, I heard of a metaphor like this, and this just came to my mind. I think it's a good one. It's not a good metaphor, but it's a good example of how not to use metaphors. This person, I don't remember their name, but it was on, you know, Instagram. You, know, you get your your theology on TikTok or Instagram, and you have to be careful. But there's a lot of people out there, and she was saying, she was, I, I didn't get the sense that she was convinced or that she was a partialist. I got the sense that she generally believed in the Trinity. But it's the way she was explaining it, she didn't realize that she was actually explaining a heresy, which is partialism. 
So she's like, well, it's kind of like an egg. And in the egg, you have the shell and the egg white and the egg yolk. And the egg yolk is the father. I forget which one she appropriated to which, but you know, you have the egg yolk is the father and the egg white is the uh, spirit. And, you know, let's say the shell is Jesus, the son. Okay. Oh, I get it. It's one egg and there's three parts there. Well, no, that's not what it's like. Again, metaphors in the physical world are always going to fail. Without a doubt, they're always going to fail because the physical world has one general rule that doesn't apply to the spiritual world. And if you tuned into the first episode, you remember what that is. That rule is that two things cannot fit in the same space at the same time. In the physical world, you cannot fit two things in the same space at the same time. Now, why that's important is in the spiritual world, that does not apply. And we don't know what that's like. We don't because everything occupies its own space in our reality. So when you try to use something like an egg to explain the Trinity, it's not going to work because it's actually teaching partialism. It's saying, well, the shell is part of the egg. The egg white is part of the egg. And so is the yolk. And all three together make the egg. But that's not the Trinity. The Trinity is the eggshell is the egg completely. <laughs> the egg white is, again, these are flawed metaphors, but it's just trying to get you to think about it. The egg white's also the egg completely. And so is the yolk completely the egg. All three are the egg. Do you see how that's vastly different and how that's not possible in our reality? It's not possible because two things cannot coexist in the same space at the same time. But that doesn't apply to the spirit world. And so ultimately, partialism, again, it's not something that people believe. Like, it's not like a, a denomination or a religion, like Unitarianism is. But partialism could be an error, number one, that you drift into in your thinking and explaining the Trinity to people. It can also be something that people accuse you of because they don't understand the Trinity. Again, it's like, thinking like, okay, there's leaves on a clover and together they form the clover. No, that's not how it works. Each person is fully God within the Trinity. They're not one third of God. But partialism, basically the problems are that it reduces each person's quality and divinity, obviously. So the father is just one third God. So you're reducing God's nature, Jesus's nature, Another crude example that, again, these things are, they're very limited, but they're, they're examples of how people think. If you watch Power Rangers as a kid, I know I did play the video game too. It was great. Super Nintendo. But you had like the Megazord that the Power Rangers would form, you know, go, go Power Rangers. And they would all kind of get into their various animals and then they would form the, the, the main robot. That's partialism. Without, without each other, they can't form the robot. So partialism says that without the, each other, then God doesn't exist. You see the point? Which is, again, very silly. <coughs> Excuse me. Without the son, the father does, the God doesn't exist. Can't, God can't be. But f father and son and spirit are equally God. When Jesus was on earth, he was God and he was also human. That's a foundational teaching of Christianity. 
But if you're a Unitarian or partialist or any of these, you pretty much deny that. So be careful with partialism. It's not something that people necessarily believe, but they might believe it by accident. And you might get accused of it by people like Muslims or other people who are anti-Trinitarian and say, see, you just, this is how your belief system works. Like, no, it, that's not how it works. Each person is fully God. Now, the next one is binitarianism. And this one is one that we should definitely be talking about because binitarianism is very tempting to enter because it seems like it gets things right by using the two people in scripture that are the most obvious, which is the father and the son. Again, the Jews were binitarians with their two powers in heaven theory for many centuries. So it's, it's a, in some sense, it is a natural understanding of the scriptures. The scriptures teach you that there's, at least in the Old Testament, that there's two powers in heaven. Absolutely. Now, once you come to the New Testament, this is what I said earlier, where heresies often, often one of the types of heresies is to use the Old Testament to interpret the New Testament. That leads you to all kinds of errors. Yeah, the Old Testament was binitarian for the most part. Although we looked at the spirit of Yahweh in the Old Testament. And with the revelation of the New Testament, you see, oh, okay, well, the spirit's there too. Because spirits are personal. And we'll get into that in just a second. But binitarianism is, in some sense, more natural than Unitarianism. So it's dangerous because it seems like people who are binitarians and they teach you binitarianism, that, they, that they're in line with scripture. Because it's, it's very easy to relegate the spirit oh, well, it's just a force or, you know, just some metaphysical thing happening between the Father and the Son. I'm like, okay, well, I guess I could see that. But there are many places in the New Testament that vouch and testify for the Spirit as being a person. So this is a very tricky one to navigate because it seems like it's the truth. Now, the basic idea is that the Father and Son are God. They're both God. Although some believe, again, they're subordinationists, that the son is lesser quality than the father in some way, eternally subordinate, maybe less divine. I've, I've heard so many perspectives on this and nobody can really define like, okay, if he's less divine than the father, then how do you measure that? Like, where do you get that from scripture? How do you measure divinity? How can Jesus still be God? How do you have an atonement if he's less divine, less perfect than God? All these questions just go unanswered, which is the case for all these heresies. But modern examples include the World Church of God by Herbert Armstrong or Hebert Armstrong. This was a very big church a while back, but they believe Jesus is God. God the Father is also God, obviously, but then the Holy Spirit is a force. But they had a lot of problems. They were legalists. They, they had like the Lunar Sabbath thing that they were doing, Old Testament feasts. Dietary laws, they were doing tithing, 30%. So again, you're using the Old Testament to interpret the new. You're living in the Old Testament. It was deemed a cult, not surprising, until they recently rebranded to Grace Communion International. They called the Trinity pagan. Of course, it's not pagan. We talked about that in the first episode. But they did believe in two divine persons. There's also the anti-Trinitarian movement, like, for example, with Adventists, anti-Trinitarian Adventism. There's some of those people on YouTube that are very popular. It's just, it's all over the place, really. But they, they're, again, they, they believe in eternal subordination, that the Father is the only source of life, 
that Christ is basically dependent on the Father for life, which is going to be very much similar to the monarchical Trinitarian view that we'll talk about next time. I actually have two episodes for that view because it's just so involved, but it's very interesting. It really is very interesting because it's more nuanced. You see, for example, like modalism or partialism, again, nobody really believes partialism, but modalism is easy. Modalism is easy to refute. Look at the baptism, look at the transfiguration, look at the voice from heaven. I forget which chapter now in John, but there's at least three situations that immediately refute modalism. Very simple. Unitarianism, <laughs> easy to refute. It really is. I, I'm just flabbergasted that people call themselves biblical Unitarians. But now when you're dealing with binitarianism, when you're dealing with having to prove the person of the Holy Spirit, that's a little trickier. That's a trickier challenge. When you're dealing with people who acknowledge the divinity of Christ, but say, well, he's eternally subordinate or, you know, the like in monarchical Trinitarian, the, the father is the only one that has aseity, which is basically he's the source of life, not Jesus. Well, that's a little, that's a finer tuned argument, even though it's heretical, I think it's wrong. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's finer tuned. So there, there's a lot more nuance that has to go into it, which I think is very interesting because it really helps flex your theological muscles. But nonetheless, there's a lot of these types of binitarian heresies that believe Christ is God, but not equal with God. Christ might be created, or maybe he's created so far back in eternity that it's practically, he's eternal anyway. So again, there's so many variations on this stuff, but here's one of the main problems, or I should say the main problems in general, having to do with the spirit. There's some other problems too, but the spirit has to be a person. We looked at this over and over again. Remember episode number three, where we talked about the father and the spirit. And we also talked about the old Testament and the spirit of Yahweh. So both of those are important contexts for what I'm about to list off here. But number one, all spirits are personal in the Bible without exception. There's never a spirit that's a force. So the spirit of God has to be a person in the old Testament. It's not very clear. But the New Testament, this is very, very clear. Because, for example, we, this is number two, really, that the, the New Testament says things like the, the Spirit has his own will, he has self-awareness, he can be grieved, he issues commands, he's outraged, he speaks, he hears, he guides. He does all these things that persons do. Forces don't do that. They don't do those things. A force cannot be blasphemed. He receives the masculine uh, noun, the advocate in John. Christ sends the spirit. But again, if the spirit is just a force or the spirit's being controlled by the father or the son, who does Christ send? Do he send himself? Do he send the father? I mean, how do you know? This is the, the main thing. Number three is he testifies of Jesus. So the question is, who's testifying? If the son is testifying... Because again, binitarians, you don't know who controls the spirit and when. This is the fundamental problem. So if, if the son is testifying, then the son said that he doesn't testify about himself. If the father is testifying through the, through the Holy Spirit, then you only have one witness. And God says that on two witnesses, something is true. Who was the dove at the baptism? That's another question. Was it a force? Forces don't inhabit animals or beings, living beings. The dove was 
inhabited by a spirit. That was a manifestation of the spirit. Very interesting. And of course, the spirit chose Christ. You had two witnesses there, the father and the spirit, two witnesses that Christ is true. He's the anointed one. That was the whole point of the, the, the baptism event to show you that God as triune is testifying of Jesus of Nazareth, the incarnation of the son. This is, this is the one that we've chosen. This is the anointed one, the Messiah. Very profound from a Trinitarian view. But if you're not a Trinitarian, how do you explain the dove? Number four, who led Jesus to be tempted? If the son is leading himself to the spirit, that doesn't make sense. The son's not going to lead himself. If the father's leading the son through the spirit, that also doesn't make sense because the father is leading the son so the son can do work to glorify the father. That doesn't, <clears throat> it's circular reasoning as opposed to inter-Trinitarian relationships. The spirit leads the son and does work through the son so that the son can glorify the father. Do you see how all this works in a Trinitarian view? But again, if you're Pinitarian and you deny the revelation of the New Testament, then what do you do with that? You, you really don't do anything. The last one is the works that Jesus did, the miracles. Who was using the Spirit to do these miracles? Was it the Father? If the Father, again, same, same problem as before, it's the idea of self-glorification. God is self-glorifying, but because God is multipersonal, that glory is relational. It's not the Father doing his own glory through the Spirit, like a force to glorify himself. The Father sends the Spirit, who the Spirit acts through the Son to glorify the Father. It is a inter-Trinitarian relationship. And again, if, if the Son is the one guiding the Spirit to do the works, then is the Son empowering himself to do the works? That doesn't make sense either, because the Son doesn't seek his own glory. So that's really the main issue with Binitarianism, is they deny the, the person. I mean, there's other issues like subordinationist type of feelings and ideas, but... The main issue, the real problem is that they deny the person or the spirit. Now, here's what that comes with. You don't know who is controlling the spirit and when. Do you see the problem? If the spirit is a force that the son and the father both control, then who is controlling the spirit and when? Because the spirit's doing a lot of things in the New Testament. Does one spirit control two persons? And if so, how do we know that that spirit isn't the the origin of life, like the one that's basically the source, like the father. How do we know that? How do you know who is controlling the spirit and when? How do you measure that? There's no way to know when the spirit was controlled and in what situation by who. Was it the father or the son doing the, the work through the spirit? There's no measure to do that. And so because there's no way to specify that, you run into all those issues I just outlined with self-glorification, self-witnessing, self-testifying, all these types of things. You really just run into all sorts of error because there's no way to distinguish. That's why there's distinction in God, by the way. That's why there's three persons. Isn't that just genius how it's all revealed? Even though it's a mystery, it's so genius. There's no there's no way to measure it. So ultimately, binitarianism really fails. They have some things right in the sense that they binitarianism was a natural thing out of the, New, out of the Old Testament. But as you can see, like with the World Church of God or whatever it's called, let me see. Um, yeah, World Church of God by Hebert Armstrong. 
they were legalists. So of course, yeah, they, they took their beliefs from the Old Testament, but they're living in the Old Testament. Nothing new under the sun. Binitarianism is not the truth. It was part of the Old Testament and what people believed, but the New Testament's like, hey, this is a new thing. The Spirit of God is a person. It's a separate person from Christ, but they're also one God, one being existing in plurality for many reasons that, again, you cannot deny the person of the Spirit. There's just so many reasons why you can't. But the Spirit is easy to deny in the sense that He's the least obvious of the three. And because people today, especially today, do not have an appreciation for the non-obvious, they will rapidly jump at these heresies and say, yeah, that, that seems true. The Spirit's probably this force and inseparable operations or binetarianism or whatever else. Because it's easy to relegate the Spirit as sort of just this ambiguous conjecture or, or force because he's not very obvious, but the spirit is a person. He's very much a person, just like the father is a person and the son is a person for both reasons of what is revealed and for theological necessity. The spirit has to be a person, which we just covered. Now, the last one, again, this one's not a heresy in the sense that people believe this heresy. I haven't run into any, this is polytheism or tritheism. I haven't run into anybody that's a tritheist. Maybe they're out there. Who knows? But this is definitely a straw man that people will bring up, like Muslims or Unitarians or anybody who basically denies the Trinity. So I say you believe in three gods. I've run into some people, though, that they said that Christianity got it wrong, that this is what a lot of pagan cultures had, and this is actually whatever taken from. Again, the Trinity is pagan. The Trinity is not pagan. Isis, Horus, and Osiris are three gods. There's a lot of triads in history. Not a single point in time does the pagan culture ever have a monotheistic religion where there is one God existing in plurality. That is unique to the nature and being of Yahweh. There is no other being that exists that way. There were false gods, and those false gods probably formed a trinity of some, or a triad to be worshipped and sort of counterfeit the truth. But Yahweh God is a triune being. That is unique to his nature. Very, very important. But nonetheless, people use <clears throat> this to say, see, you believe in three gods, and so on. But, you know, Isaiah 44, 8, there's no other God besides me. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's John 14, 15. What does the first commandment say? You shall have no other gods besides me. Meaning God not only says, I'm the only God, you will not have any other gods besides me. So if there are three gods, and this is the revelation of scripture, then how does that work? God is asking you to honor, Jesus says, honor the son as you honor the father. Daniel's vision of the son of man in Daniel 7, the son of man receives worship and dominion. Excuse me. Worship and dominion. Well, how can you receive worship if you're not God? How can God, how can Jesus ask you to honor him the way that you honor the Father if he's not God? How can Peter in his letters say, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ? How can John call Jesus God? 
all these evidences that we looked at are flying in the face of people who believe that we're teaching tritheism. No, the Bible teaches that Jesus is God. But it also teaches that Jesus is separate from the Father, who is also God. And the Spirit is God. So how do you how do you reconcile that? Well, you reconcile it in the sense that it's a mystery. You accept that you can't understand it, but you accept that it's a mystery, meaning it, it has things that in our reality, our three-dimensional reality, are contradictory. There's unity and, I should say, unity and separation. Those two things cannot coexist at the same time in some sense. And yet, we have that too. We looked at, again, the metaphors are limited, but I have a hand. My hand is one hand, but it has different fingers. I'm one body, but I have countless different cells. So we exist in the sense that there's unity and distinction. But that is just a shadow of the truth. The truth of God, who is ultimate reality, who is not made of separate parts, exists in unity and distinction on a level that we can't even understand or fathom. That's the mystery. So when somebody says you're a tritheist, tell them that's not the case. That's not what God teaches in the Bible. It's not what I believe. It's a mystery. Because again, what does that do? Polytheism goes to the side of separation, like partialism. Trying to reduce the mystery. God is... Well, you believe in three, you must believe in three gods. No, I believe in one God. One God existing tripersonally. Three persons. In the spirit world, we are not, they're not limited by two things existing in the same place, same time. How does that work? I don't know. I, I don't need to know. It's a mystery. I'm sure we're going to marvel at it for the rest of eternity. But God exists as one being in three persons. That's not the same as three gods. But you see, when you say, oh, it's three gods, now you feel better about it. Oh, now I know. Oh, yeah, it's just three three gods. There we go. Now, now it's according to my physical understanding of the world. Everything to do with heresy in terms of the Trinity always reduces the level of mystery in the Trinity. Or even, you know, the incarnation. We look at all the heresies in incarnation like subordinationism or Nestorianism or Arianism. You know, go down the list. What do they do? They reduce the mystery of the incarnation to something that could be understood by man. That's the pattern. So hopefully that makes sense to you because all these things really come down to one thing, and that is reducing the mystery. When you zoom out all this, all these different heresies, they all have to do with some kind of approach to the nature of Christ. Either changing his divinity or denying it. You know, a lot of people argued over Christ's divinity in the early church, and they just couldn't put him in a box. So the heresies that were extreme got rooted out, but then you had other things like subordinationism or monarchical Trinitarianism, which we'll talk about next. Everything to do with just putting Christ, well, we got to put him somewhere in a box. It can't, we can't understand how he's equal to the Father, but separate from the Father. We just can't understand that. So we got to put him here so he's there. Now we have to put him in two different... Do you see how this works? The Bible tells you that Christ is equal to the Father. The Son and the Father are the same. They are co-eternal persons, coexistent. But all these heresies say, well, Christ is less than the Father. He's still divine, but he's less than the Father. Now he has his own space, 
and the Father has his own space. Now it applies to the rules of our world, which is two things being in separate spaces at the same time. Do you see how this works in your mind? And that's why these are heresies. But we'll see in the next couple weeks, like I said, we have some advanced topics like the monarchical Trinitarian teaching. All these things really come down to either Christological issues, meaning the nature of Christ, like Unitarianism, Binitarianism, subordinations, all those are Christological issues. Unitarians and Binitarians and subordinationists all have some issue to do with the nature of Christ. They do not acknowledge Christ as co-equal with the Father, although maybe some Binitarians do. That's possible. Or there's too much focus on separation, like partialism and tritheism, which again, they're just straw man arguments and people don't really believe this. Although partialism, some people may accidentally believe it. Very important. Or there's too much focus on unity. So the imbalance either one way or the other, which is modalism and inseparable operations. I guess you could lump Unitarianism in that as well. That's one God, one person. So you have to remember the truth is always the narrow road. The narrow road between two extremes. The devil is always going to try to push you either to the right or to the left. The Bible says, I think over 18 times, do not swerve to the right or to the left. Very important that that, that is a thing that's in the Bible. Don't swerve to the right or to the left. Avoid duality. Or I should say avoid being caught up in duality. Let me put it in a better way. Because duality is a part of life. It's the dance of life. But we are not going into these extremes. We're going in between, walking the narrow road, which is really the story of my life and why I created the name of this podcast. God's nature is a mystery. It's been revealed to us both in ways that he's distinct and in ways that he's unified. Jesus is Yahweh. He's the Son incarnate, pre-existent, eternal God, equal with the Father. Very important. That's what the Bible teaches you. And you have to reconcile that because that means that God is multipersonal at the very least. Even if you're Binitarian, you have to acknowledge. That's the thing I don't get about Binitarians. It's like you acknowledge there's two. What's the problem with three? I mean, what's the problem with three persons? Why, why are you so adamant against three persons? If anything, it makes things way more easier. It's a much more consistent explanation. So that's the funny thing with Binitarianism. But when Jesus returns... Yahweh, as a triune being, will rule through Jesus' body on earth. The Trinity will rule through, through Jesus, the physical Jesus, on earth. When you look at Jesus, you will see the triune God. And we're going to look at that in the next couple episodes with triune monarchy, which is really what the Bible, I believe, teaches at the end of time. Triune monarchy. God is king, but God is triune. Very, very interesting stuff. So, careful out there. There's many opinions. There are as many opinions as there are people and cell phones. So make sure to always test everything with scripture to make sure you test what you learn. Don't go to the left or to the right because there are a lot of heresies out there. So we'll see you next time. Until then, take care. God bless. <laughs>